Hello, everyone. It's Patrick, and I just want to remind you that our Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1 is going on in full force. We spend the entire time each episode basically breaking down high-yield practice questions, so it's the perfect companion, along with our audio QBank, to help you study on the go during your dedicated USMLE Step 1 prep time. Just search your favorite podcatcher for Inside the Boards Study Smarter, and please spread the word and tell your friends about what we feel is the best, highest yield, free audio resource for USMLE, Comlex, and med school preparation. I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feels like my life ain't mine. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today, it's another entry in our audio blog powered by Med School Tutors. We have two articles for you here today. First off, six tips to finish strong during your USMLE dedicated study period by friend of the show, Brian Radovansky. And another USMLE step one question breakdown. Also, by Brian Radovansky. Before we get into those, first, an example from our all-audio bank. A 65-year-old female presented with progressive dyspnea. She is a known hypertensive but is poorly compliant with medications. On history taking, the patient claims to experience orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and easy fatigability. On physical examination, her blood pressure is 80 over 50. There is prominent neck vein distension, S3 gallop, bibasal crackles, and grade 3 bipedal edema. A 2D echocardiogram was done, which showed a depressed ejection fraction of 32%. Which of the following drugs should not be given to this patient at this time? Is it A, furosemide, B, metoprolol, C, digoxin, or D, dobutamine? And the correct answer is B, metoprolol. So this is a case of an acute decompensated heart failure with signs and symptoms like orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and easy fatigability, and also the neck vein distension, S3 gallop, bibasal crackles, etc. Due to marked systolic dysfunction, as evident by a depressed ejection fraction, beta blockers are contraindicated at this time because they may further lower cardiac output in a patient who's having acute decompensated heart failure. However, for the management of chronic heart failure, beta blockers along with ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and aldosterone receptor antagonists like spironolactone are the mainstay of therapy. Diuretics like furosemide are a vital component of the treatment in acute decompensated heart failure because they reduce water retention and edema, particularly pulmonary edema. A good mnemonic for the management of an acute CHF exacerbation is LMNOP for Lasix, Morphine, Nitroglycerin, O2, and Positioning. Lasix or furosemide helps to get fluid off. Morphine and nitroglycerin also help to reduce preload. 
O2, or oxygenation, is always going to be important. And positioning, you want to sit the patient up to get fluid off their lungs. Inotropic agents like digoxin and dobutamine can also increase cardiac output to improve forward flow in these situations. But we wouldn't want to use a beta blocker like metoprolol in this situation because it would inhibit the heart's ability to contract. And now let's get into our articles. First up, six tips to finish strong during your USMLE dedicated study period. So many things we do in life are all about finishing. We want someone who can get the job done. We look for a real closer. We search for a person who can see this project through to completion. Our dedicated study period for the USMLE is no different. A strong finish is instrumental in your success. Come out too strong, and you might burn out before that final week, leaving little left for test day. On the other hand, if you don't push yourself hard enough up front, you might be scrambling in this final week and go into test day a bit flustered. So what steps can you take to cruise into test day feeling strong, energetic, learned, and ready? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, an individualized and detailed USMLE study plan is essential. The absolute simplest way to prevent your USMLE train from derailing is to build a sturdy and dependable track. Before you even open page one of first aid during your study period, you should have a day-by-day study plan built, encompassing day one through test day. The idea is simple, but the execution takes discipline. You are building yourself a curriculum built around the entirety of first aid and UWorld. Based on your own strengths and weaknesses, figure out how much time you have in your dedicated period. Devote about two-thirds to the first pass through the material, and one-third to the second pass, or review. Then, break down each period into individualized subjects based on the importance and breadth of the subject, i.e. giving more days to subjects like cardiology and less to rheumatology musculoskeletal. Trust me, you'll feel so much more at ease with a firm plan. If you need to stray slightly from the path, that's okay, but keep yourself on a short leash. Don't use up twice as many days as you've allotted to master a subject, but if you need an extra half day at the expense of memorizing biochemical pathways, this is permissible. You'll have to do what it takes to keep up. That might mean a 12-hour study day instead of the planned 10, or foregoing watching the big game. Discipline will get you there. Your plan will ensure that your final week of studying can be spent the right way, putting the finishing touches and connecting all of your newfound knowledge and not pulling your hair out or throwing up from anxiety. Number two, along those lines, do the math. Figure out how many questions you are planning on completing. A solid two passes through you world should do it. That's about 4,800 questions. The same goes for one pass through you world and another pass through Kaplan's QBank. Over the course of six weeks, you are looking at over 100 questions per day. You will probably want to have zero to one study-free days per week, and other days will be reserved for NBME tests. Use these numbers to calculate an average number of questions per day and do what it takes to hit the mark. You must complete thousands of questions to perform at your best, period. Number three, firm up the topics you hate and keep putting off. Everyone's got their Achilles heel. What is that you hate? Anti-epileptics? The urea cycle? 
mucopolysaccharidoses, categorization of nephritic and nephrotic syndromes, that dread, that sinking feeling you get in your stomach when your brain involuntarily says, ugh, a biostats question, I'm bad at these. You can harness this negativity and sublimate it into points on test day with some devoted practice in the subject at hand. Your final week is your last chance to attack these topics you hate and flip them into topics you feel comfortable with. The goal is to put in a dogged effort, focusing intently on whatever topic eats away at you, and turn it into an ally. Make it so that the next time you see it, you say, a biostats question. I put in the effort, and now I'm good at these. 4. Cram the crammable. While the general approach of cramming is not recommended, there are some subjects that may lend themselves more easily to last-ditch efforts to put facts in your brain. Subjects that are low-yield and based on loads of annoying one-off facts are the most crammable of topics. Some classics are your biochemistry pathways. For example, the TCA cycle, urea cycle, sweet, sweet glycolysis, esoteric drugs like immunosuppressants, and biostats questions. Think positive predictive values, odds ratios, and relative risk calculations. 5. Start making life seem like test day before the real test day. With three to four days before the test, you will want to start emulating your test day behaviors. Reset your biological clock so that you're at peak performance during the test. If you are slotted for an 8 a.m. test, make sure you are running on all cylinders early in the morning. Did you opt for the noon test? Then there's no need to be in the zone at 7 a.m. Hit your stride at the right time. Plan your meals accordingly. Give yourself breaks similar to test day. Distribute those 45 minutes now as you will during the test. If you need a big meal halfway through for brain power, do this in the days leading up to and including the test. Take seven six-minute breaks and stuff your face with dark chocolate and walnuts if that makes your brain work better. Groom your physiology to be primed for test day. Six, Use the last one and a half days to take it easy. I tell my students to do little to no work on the day before the test, which is easier said than done. It is difficult to suppress the excitement that has been building. However, your brain deserves a rest. You will not lose your knowledge and drive by taking a day off. In fact, the rest will likely benefit your psyche and improve your question-answering ability. If you must... Go through the motions of doing a few questions to put your mind at ease. At best, you might learn a single fact here or there. The odds that this tiny fact is tested and that it will make a significant difference in your score? Infinitesimal. If you do nothing else to set up your final study week, remember this. The best way to finish your study period strong is to put in the effort to build a rock-solid plan before you even begin. Now, Fly off into the sunset, young fledglings. All right, that's article number one. Good advice, and just a disclaimer, of course. This is admittedly Dr. Radovansky's personal opinion. This advice won't work for everyone, but he is experienced and has tutored scores of students, so the advice is probably pretty trustworthy as a general rule. Next up... Back by popular demand, the USMLE Step 1 Question Breakdown. A tricky question and a stepwise approach to get you 
not only to the right answer, but smarter along the way. Break it down now. A 67-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a two-day history of progressively worsening cough. He has a history of poorly controlled hypertension, 30-pack year smoking history, well-controlled diabetes, and had a STEMI four years prior. He complains of mild, sharp chest pain while coughing, some shortness of breath while walking around his apartment, and lightheadedness when standing up. Vital signs on arrival are a heart rate of 114, a blood pressure of 100 over 55, a respiratory rate of 26, a temperature of 101.9, and an oxygen saturation of 86% on 4 liters by nasal cannula. Physical examination is significant for general ill appearance, decreased breath sounds in the right lower chest, tachypnea, tachycardia, and the use of accessory muscles of breathing. He is somewhat alert and oriented only to person in place. An ABG shows a pH of 7.29, a PCO2 of 60, and a PO2 of 69. An EKG shows Q waves in the inferior leads. Which of the following is most likely to improve the patient's clinical status? Is it A, dobutamine, B, furosemide, C, doxycycline, D, vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam, E, pleurocentesis, or F, aspirin and heparin. Okay, how to approach such a question? We've got a sick older gentleman who is certainly on the decline. We will start with the way we approach any question, by forming a differential diagnosis. Older man, smoking history as well as cardiac history, who is coming in with a cough? Let's stay right there. What can cause a cough? It can be something as innocuous as an unnamed viral infection, or a particular virus like coronavirus or adenovirus. In a patient who is a lifetime smoker, we certainly need to be concerned for COPD, and a subsequent COPD exacerbation. Given his history of MI, there is a chance that he's got scarred myocardium and a bit of heart failure secondary to his dead chunk of heart. Remember, MI equals infarction equals dead, scarred, non-pumping, non-conducting heart tissue. Could he have lung cancer? A pleural effusion? Even the lowly GERD can cause cough, though that's usually more chronic and indolent. Most often, in an older patient with comorbidities, especially a sicker one like we've got here, cough is driven by a cardiopulmonary process. In the real world, a patient like this would have a pretty in-depth workup involving cardiac enzymes, chest x-ray, CBC, BMP, ABG, beta-naturesis peptide, blood cultures, sputum cultures, etc. But, as is the case with USMLE questions, we don't have such a luxury. As we read further, we notice that the patient has chest pain. Chest pain usually screams cardiac nature at us, but not all chest pain is driven by the heart. Is this chest pain ischemic in nature? Probably not, as it is more pleuritic in nature, worse with breathing, as opposed to being substernal pressure driven by activity. At this point, we are making a better case for a pneumonia, but cardiac etiologies certainly aren't off the table and cannot afford to be missed. 
Other considerations with pleuritic chest pain are pleural effusion, pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, and connective tissue diseases. We are likely dealing with two main contenders for our pathology. This could be a COPD exacerbation driven by infection or a heart failure exacerbation. Things arguing for COPD exacerbation include the smoking history, decreased breath sounds, hypoxia, tachypnea, and progressive cough. On the acute decompensated heart failure side, we've got worsening cough, say due to pulmonary edema, decreased breath sounds, tachypnea, tachycardia, history of MI, and a history of poorly controlled hypertension, which leads to stiffening of the left ventricle, impaired relaxation, and an increase in pulmonary pressure slash capillary leakage. His vitals, tachypnic, tachycardic, hypoxic, hypotensive, and febrile. All of a sudden, we are making a great case for an infectious etiology. In fact, if we are ready to chalk this presentation up to infection, we are meeting criteria for sepsis, elevated temp, tachycardia, tachypnea. Sick indeed. He is also meeting criteria for end-organ dysfunction, as lack of cerebral perfusion or a lack of oxygen in the blood that is reaching his brain is starting to contribute to some mental status changes. While COPD exacerbation, probably driven by pneumonia in this case, and acute decompensated heart failure can appear very similar clinically, and patients suffering from both often have such similar histories, the finer points can help differentiate between the two. In real life, we have the luxury of lab testing and imaging to further guide our management, but in this case, we have to get there with less information. A chest x-ray would certainly help point us in one direction. If the right lower lobe is whited out, we've got our pneumonia, plain and simple. If we see diffuse infiltrates, cephalization of pulmonary vessels, and bilateral pleural fusions at the lung bases, pulmonary edema, secondary to heart failure is the winner. We've made our diagnosis something that is necessary in almost every USMLE question, even if it doesn't ask what is the most likely diagnosis. Whether we need treatment strategies, histologic or pathologic findings, or natural course of the disease slash prognosis, a diagnosis must be made. With a diagnosis of sepsis, secondary to COPD exacerbation, secondary to pneumonia, what will we do for this gentleman? The clear answer is broad-spectrum antibiotics, at least until some culture data guides our therapy or the patient improves enough to make the switch to a PO regimen. For posterity, let's examine the answer choices. A. Dobutamine. This would be our therapy for cardiogenic shock. If we believe that his poor respiratory status and systemic hypotension were driven by a left ventricle that's simply not pumping, something not uncommon for patients with previous MIs, then inotropic support with this beta agonist would help promote forward flow. Through its beta-2 agonism, dobutamine lowers systemic vascular resistance to take down the afterload that a failing heart must pump against. Choice B was furosemide. A great choice for decompensated heart failure, as it will help the fluid overload through diuresis and also serve as a venodilator, creating a larger reservoir for the increased intravascular volume to take some stress off the heart. C. Doxycycline. 
For a more gentle COPD exacerbation, doxycycline can be a fine choice for an antibiotic. For instance, a patient with a low-grade fever and increased sputum production who visits his primary care doctor feeling slightly under the weather could benefit from an oral antibiotic and be sent home with instructions to report to the emergency department if he gets much worse. In a septic patient like this, a PO antibiotic is not an appropriate first-line choice. E. Pleurocentesis The most invasive choice here could be employed at some point during his hospitalization if a pleural effusion is the leading culprit of his hypoxia. However, we would never start needling a patient's thorax in a non-emergent situation without obtaining some imaging first. Also, before performing an invasive procedure, we would begin with medical therapy and see if the patient's clinical status and any pleural effusion that might be driven by his pneumonia improves first. F was aspirin and heparin. If you were thinking acute coronary syndrome, this would be a great place to start. However, the patient's chest pain didn't seem very ischemic, and his EKG showed only Q waves, which are consistent with a previous MI and subsequent scarring. Take-home lessons, as in any question, or any patient who you are working up, Form a differential and narrow it as you incorporate information along the way. For nearly every USMLE question, you must make a diagnosis. Lastly, if asked, think about what you would do to fix the problem. Questions about this question? Let us know below. All right, another great article by the inimitable Brian Radovansky from Med School Tutors. Um, that last point, questions about this question, let us know below. Um, there is a link in the show notes. You can uh, scroll down to the bottom of that page and leave a comment for that article if you so desire. That's all we've got for today. Tune in next time where we'll cover how to improve your score during your final two weeks of USMLE prep. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we are keeping with our use of the logic song 1-800-273-8255 because that is the number to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So thanks to Chris Saru and Logic for letting us use this track off Logic's 2017 album, Everybody. 